So we're in this final vision in the book of Revelation, the seventh vision, uh, and it's the, uh, the wedding or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Last week I mentioned briefly the process of a first century Jewish marriage. It began with the betrothal, which would be months or even years beforehand when the actual marriage covenant was drawn up between the the families. Uh, This betrothal was as legally binding as a marriage itself. It could only be dissolved through death or divorce, just like marriage. At the time of the betrothal, a dowry was paid. The groom of the, fa- the sorry, the groom or his father would pay the bride's family an agreed sum, which was compensation for what would be lost by a productive member of the family leaving the household. It wasn't a purchase price. It wasn't buying a wife. The woman wasn't a possession because she's an equal, divine image bearer along with the man. Now what's interesting to note is that it, it, it became a custom amongst the Jews that the father of the bride would give most, if not all, of the dowry to his daughter and the dowry would allow her to then prepare herself for her marriage. So in many cases the groom would just simply give the dowry to his future bride This betrothal was a time of preparation. The groom would prepare a place, a room in his father's house for him and his bride to live. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Then when the day that was set by the bridegroom's father arrived, the announcement would be made, everything is ready, and the bride was to be on the lookout for her groom, who could arrive at any time to collect her. Well, we're currently we are living in that betrothal time between Jesus' first and second comings. Jesus has paid the dowry that's required to redeem us, the price of his own precious blood. And he's sealed the covenant of marriage with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the down payment the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And there's no need for us to fear that this marriage covenant in this betrothal time is going to be annulled because he's the faithful husband who's never going to divorce us and of course we're never going to be widowed because he's conquered death and he lives forevermore. So now we are to look, to wait for the day set by the Father for Jesus to come back 
to take us to be with him in his father's house. We heard that great announcement, verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, set in the future, the announcement will be made. We saw the invitation, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So with that announcement, according to that timeline of a wedding, the next scene that we see is the arrival of the bridegroom himself. This is the first of what uh, I've called the seven glories of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hopefully that's readable there. As you can see, each aspect of this vision deals with the key problems that were raised through the book of Revelation. Starting with the opening of the seals in chapter 6, right through to the great prostitute of Babylon in chapter 17. It shows us that when Jesus the bridegroom appears, not only will the bride be ready, but everything that he's currently doing to put everything into place, to prepare our place in his father's house, will also be completed. So in our passage this morning, we're, we're giving us a, a series of statements about this bridegroom, about his identity through a series of names, about his appearance and about his actions. And together they form for us this perfect, complete portrait of Jesus. Now, Jesus, the kingly warrior, riding out to war isn't an image that many people like these days. Maybe you don't like it either. Many popular perceptions of Jesus today are really just projections of ourselves, or at least our own aspirations. There's the social justice Jesus, the political underdog who campaigns for the poor and the oppressed. There's the health and wealth Jesus, who will fix all your problems and make you prosper in this life. There's the sentimental Jesus, who makes you feel comfortable and good about yourself. There's the wise teacher Jesus, who gives you good principles to live your life by. Those versions of Jesus, they're simply supporting our own felt needs. There are Jesus that we can recruit to satisfy the desires of our own hearts. As I've currently got on the little sandwich board I occasionally put out on the footpath there, uh, Tim Keller said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. But when the real Jesus makes himself known to us, we should expect to feel a bit uncomfortable. He's not a Jesus who conforms to our expectations, but rather he challenges them. He calls us to repent of them and instead to desire the things he desires and to pursue the things that he pursues. So let's have a look at this rider on 
a white horse. White horses were rare and so they were considered to be special and they were therefore reserved for kings and for noble and important people. Now right back in chapter 6, the first of the seals was opened by Christ and released the first of those four horsemen, a white horse, a rider wearing a crown and going out conquering and to conquer. It's a very similar picture, isn't it? And in fact, John uses exactly the same words, behold a white horse. And that similarity has led some people to believe that the rider in chapter 6 represents Jesus coming forth in his resurrection victory. But what I said way back in chapter, when we were in chapter 6 was I believe that rider is not Christ but one who claims to be a Christ. That rider was going out and was distorting the mandate given to humanity to rule over the earth. Remember God's command flowed out of placing the man in Eden to work it, to guard it, and humanity was to rule over creation, causing it to flourish, to make all of creation into a garden, bringing order and rest and reflecting the creative work of God when he brought order out of the formlessness and bringing everything to that seventh day of Sabbath rest. But that first rider of the white horse was seeking to rule creation, not in God's way, but our way, through conquest, through raw power and control instead of serving and giving. It's a picture of us trying to be gods ourselves instead of creatures under God. That's why his three companions, the red, the black and the pale horses, represented war and famine and death. That's what our ruling over the earth without regard for God has produced. So this is a new rider on a white horse doing away with that first one. Now initially there are seven statements then that build up this portrait of this bridegroom. Firstly we see his name. Faithful and true. The first thing said about Jesus in Revelation is, in 1 verse 5, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. When he was speaking to the church in Philadelphia, he introduced himself as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens, what he opens no one will shut and what he shuts no one will open. Then when speaking to the church in Laodicea, he calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this name, faithful and true, has something to do with him being a witness 
And his role of authority uh, out of which flows him being faithful and true. See, the Father has entrusted the entire universe to his only begotten Son. And the Son comes from the Father and by speaking his witness, he makes the Father known to us. He said, all things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the only one that we can trust to bring us to the Father. Everyone else can only speak with second-hand knowledge. We may have a level of faithfulness We speak of the truth that we've heard, but only Jesus is the faithful and true witness who comes direct from the Father. That's why he alone can say, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Secondly, we're told about his actions. In righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus rides forth on this white horse to undo the deception and the destruction of that first white horse rider, to be the true ruler of God's creation. And by doing so he restores the proper rule of humanity over the earth. Now the emphasis here is on this word Righteousness, his judgment and the war he fights is righteous. We've been asking that question a lot recently, haven't we? Whether there's such a thing as a righteous war, as we've been looking at what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Some say yes, some say no. It was actually Christians starting with St Augustine, who first formulated a just war theory based on biblical principles such as in the Bible God used war and armies to bring judgement upon nations. That the goal of war should be to right injustice and to bring about peace and that the outcome of the war should be better than if you hadn't gone to war in the first place. In World War I, theologians from both sides came up with biblical reasons as to why Germany was right, why England was right. So no matter how much we theorise it, the reality is our wars will never be truly just will never be able to guarantee the best outcome because no matter how pure our motives may be, none of us will be faithful and true. But Christ is. All of his judgments are always true and fair and justified. When he goes out to war, the outcome is guaranteed. The punishment of his enemies and the salvation of his people. If there's anyone you would want fighting for you, it's Jesus, the one called faithful and true.
Then we're told something about his appearance. His eyes are like flame of, a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Together these speak of his divine authority to rule and to judge. The eyes of fire that are all seen and which are ready to bring the fiery wrath of God upon evil. And the diadems of his authority to rule over the nations. How many diadems does he have? We're just told many. Remember the red dragon, Satan, had seven. The beast from the sea had ten. But Jesus has many. In other words, so many you can't even count them. He's ruler over every tribe, every people every nation. His authority far exceeds all spiritual and all human claims to authority because his authority is given to him by his Father. And then we're told another, well we're not told another name, we're told he has another name written but no one knows it but himself. And this divine authority is communicated in this second name. It's written but only known to himself. In ancient thinking, knowing someone's name would give you power over that person. So the gods were thought to have their public names by which the regular people addressed them, but they also had a secret name so that no human being could know their name and control them. As we've been seeing on Friday nights in Deuteronomy, the wonder of grace in the Old Testament was that the one true God made his name known to his people. Yahweh, I am. Not so they would get control over him, but so they could know him personally through covenant relationship. Well, Jesus here has a secret name written down but only known to himself and it begs the question, is he going to tell us what his name is? And for the moment, we're not told. We're told more about his appearance. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. Now, I hope you Notice the parallels between our first reading from Isaiah 62 and 63 and this passage. When the Lord went to take his people out of Babylon back into the promised land, it was, as he said, like a young man coming to marry his bride. He was saying... To the exiles, I am coming to trample down those who have trampled on you. The red stains on my garments that look like the juice of grapes from the winepress, they're the spattered blood of my enemies and your enemies. So this blood speaks of your redemption. So clearly that's where that uh, image comes from. Jesus wants John and wants us to remember this passage from Isaiah. But there's 
Something different here, though, that we need to notice. In verse 15, we're told, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Future tense. So in this vision, this is yet to happen, yet here he is with blood already on his robes. So the question is, whose blood is this? If it's not his enemies. Well, it's his own blood shed at the cross where he himself went through the judgment of the fury of the wrath of God, where his own life blood was spattered and poured out on the earth the price paid to redeem his people. Remember in chapter 1, Jesus was dressed in pure priestly robes as he walked among the churches. Well, now this robe is permanently stained with the blood of sacrifice, the offering that he gave of himself to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus isn't just a kingly warrior He's a kingly, priestly warrior. We're told another name. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now that's connected with this appearance of him in the blood-stained robe. The connection may not immediately be obvious to us, but it, it would have been to John who wrote in the first chapter of his Gospel of the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. The Word who then became flesh and made his dwelling among us, showing us his glory as the only Son of the Father. And what's the reason for the Word of God becoming flesh? so that he would become the high priest, the perfect sacrifice, so he could represent us truly in every way as one of us. And that's why John makes the point of recording in his Gospel the first thing that John the Baptist said when he saw this word made flesh was, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the word of God, he's the fulfilment of all the prophets. He's not merely one more prophet who speaks the word of the Lord, but he is the word of the Lord embodied. He doesn't merely bring us a message from God, he is the full and final message from God. So now we need to extend our title. He's the kingly, priestly, prophetic warrior. So we've seen seven statements about Jesus, his actions, his appearance, his identity. We shouldn't be surprised to see another lot of seven in Revelation. And then for a moment the attention shifts from Jesus to those who are following him, the armies of heaven. Not angels, as some might assume. This is us, the saints. And the giveaway is they're dressed in pure white linen. With only one exception in the book of Revelation, pure white linen is always worn by 
the saints. Unlike Jesus, though, there's no blood on our robes. Jesus alone is the one with the sword going out to fight. He alone has the blood-stained robes. And it's it's his blood, we see in chapter 7, it is his blood that washes our robes and makes them white. This is the great exchange. The blood applied to Jesus stains his robe because he took our sin onto himself. But the blood applied to us makes our robes white because it washes, it atones for the filthy stains of our sins for which he died. The saints are like Jesus. We're riding on white horses because we share in his victory and because we reign with him. We're royalty. This is a picture of the church I believe we especially need to see today, even if it makes us uncomfortable. The victory that the risen Jesus gives to his people is complete. It's absolute. But of course it's not victory as the world defines victory. For many centuries, especially in the West, the church mistakenly thought that victory is when Christians are in the the majority, when Christians are in control of this world's systems. And in recent times, that's no longer been the case. So we might struggle to feel like we're living in the victory of Christ when less than 8% of Australians regularly attend church, when we see a secular government take over a church-run hospital, when laws are passed that makes it hard for Christian schools to stand firm on biblical principles. We might not feel victorious, but we need to remind ourselves of the people to whom this letter was originally written. In the 60s, in the Roman Empire, there were no church buildings, there were no church-run hospitals, there were no Christian schools. Christians couldn't lobby the government. Rather, the government of the day was fiercely persecuting, arresting, torturing and slaughtering Christians because the emperor had blamed them for the great fire of Rome. Yet in the midst of that, Jesus tells them they are a victorious army dressed in white, following him on white horses. Our victory in Christ won't be obvious to the world or to us if we're thinking in worldly terms because it's a victory over sin and death and the devil. It's a victory that will only be seen when Christ appears and we are resurrected and clothed in immortality in his likeness. Yet it is a victory that we can know for sure in the present, knowing that all of the hardships, all of the sufferings, the persecutions of this life are being used by the Father to make us more like Jesus. So there's even victory in the midst of suffering. When the world sees us as as Paul described it, scum of the world and the refuse of everything. What do we know? 
Remember the flowers. God calls us his treasured possession. He's raised us up. He's seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's our true location. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is the room prepared for us in the Father's house by our bridegroom. Our destination is the new heavens and the new earth. So whenever you feel beaten down or discouraged or doubting or fearful, remember this picture of the armies of heaven following Jesus, our triumphant King, and remind yourself that you are among their ranks. All of these significant statements, these seven statements about Jesus, we see are applied to us as the church. Remember, he is the bridegroom who in marriage will make everything that belongs to him ours. Now, the next four statements follow a slightly different pattern in that thematically they go in reverse and they take us back to that secret name. See how the sword that comes out of his mouth parallels his name, the word of God. Jesus doesn't conquer and rule with military might like worldly powers. His sword is his word. In the present, he's striking down the nations, not by setting up or tearing down political structures, but as the gospel is going out to all nations and people from all nations are being brought in to the kingdom of God. It's the word of God that brings people to their knees in repentance and faith. There's a myth you may have heard that in the early days, Christianity was spread by the power of the sword. It's not actually the case. There was no need because as the gospel spread like a virus, people's eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and they gladly turned to Christ. Then there's this parallel between treading the winepress of God's wrath and his robe dipped in blood, which we've already dealt with. And then finally, we're brought back then to the secret name. See, it's the written name. The other names, he was called by these names, but the unknown name was written, and now we come to this written name. We were left hanging because we weren't told what this name is. We were left wondering, just as the Lord gave his secret name to his Old Testament people, will Jesus give his secret name to us, his New Testament people? And he does. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now this title essentially means the highest ruler of all things. It's a title that belongs to God alone. Now, in English, it may sound like he's a king who rules over kings or a lord who rules other lords. But in fact, it's the the way that the Hebrew language expresses superlatives. It means the greatest of all. For example, when the Bible 
calls the inner tent in the tabernacle the Holy of Holies. That means the most holy place. The Bible book, Song of Songs, is the greatest song. When the Bible uses the term forever and ever, in the original Greek, it's literally the ages of the ages. So, King of Kings and Lord of Lords means the highest King of all, the greatest Lord of all. But there's, there's more to this than simply saying Jesus is the greatest ruler. Lord of Lords is on one level a rebuttal to Rome who called its emperor, Nero, at the time, Lord. So while everyone else was declaring Caesar is Lord out of fear for their lives, Christians proclaimed Jesus is Lord and they lost their lives because of it. But there's more to it even than simply asserting that Jesus is greater than Nero. The Greek word for Lord was used to translate the Hebrew word Adonai, which was the word that the Jews used to refer to God's name, the name that they would not dare utter. So as you probably know, in your Bibles, when whenever you see the word Lord in capitals in the Old Testament, behind that the Hebrew is actually God's name, Yahweh, I am. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he asked, please show me your glory. He was asking for that revelation into the mystery of God's very character. And God said yes. He said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. So when the time came, he hid Moses in the cleft in the rock and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See how there he states his name twice. As if to say, this isn't just a name I'm giving you that you can speak with your mouth. This is me, this is my very heart, the essence of who I am as the God who has entered into covenant relationship with you. And then he unpacks what his heart is in this beautiful portrait of mercy and patience and love and faithfulness perfectly coupled with righteousness and justice. So Jesus has not only King of Kings written on his thigh, but also Lord of Lords, the Lord, the Lord. This name doesn't just mean the highest ruler of all things. This is the one true and living God, the same God who brought his people out of Egypt and made his name known to them, the I Am, the God who opened up his heart to them. He promised that they would know him as their God. This is who our bridegroom is. 
Do you remember what was promised to the one who conquers in the church at Pergamum in chapter 2? Don't expect you to off the top of your head. Jesus said, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A written name. He's given it to you so you may know him. To the conquerors in the church of Philadelphia, he said, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. His name, which is written, but known to no one but himself, his true, his secret identity, which gives anyone who knows it exclusive, direct access to him, this name he has written down and he's given it to us so that we may have that access to him. To be a Christian is not just to know about Jesus. It's not even just to believe that what's said about him in the Bible is true. It's to know him just as we are known by him. As our bridegroom, he's given himself all he is, all he has fully to us.